several years ago when I first began to read the works of the Puritans, and I realized how incredibly rich in doctrine and devotion the Puritan writings could be, I decided to study the Westminster Confession of Faith in earnest and try to grasp the real depth of Puritan theology. And I didn't get very far into it when I encountered section 2, paragraph 1, and I read this description of God. It says, "...there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable." And I stopped at that point kind of dumbfounded. I I didn't have any trouble with the idea that God was infinite in being and perfection. I, I knew, of course, God is a spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. I also knew that God is without parts. That's the doctrine of divine simplicity. God is not composed of parts. Uh, He is indivisible. There is one true and living God. I I had all of that down, and and I fully accepted the idea that God is immutable, that He doesn't change in any way. But I really stumbled over that word passions. God is without passions, And I ask myself, is the Westminster Confession suggesting that God lacks emotional feelings like joy and sadness, gladness, anger? How could you reconcile a view like that with the biblical data? Just consider, for example, Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and listen to this phrase, he was grieved in his heart. And in fact, Scripture frequently ascribes changing emotions to God. At various times, he is said to be grieved. Psalm 78, verse 40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. He can be angry. Deuteronomy 1, verse 34 says, Yahweh heard the sound of your words and he was angry and swore an oath. He can be pleased, 1 Kings 3.10. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked for wisdom. And at times you see him joyful, Zephaniah 3, verse 17. Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will be joyful over over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. And we're told that God can even be moved by pity. Judges 2.18 says this about the people of Old Testament Israel during the time of the judges. Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and suppressed them. So I ask myself, why would the Westminster Confession say God is without passions when Scripture says all of those things about Him? And here's a related question. Why does Scripture say God never changes His mind, and then it also says several times that God has changed His mind? Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. Has He said, and will He not do it? Or has He spoken, and will He not establish it? But then you read Genesis 6, 6, in the days of Noah, Scripture says, Yahweh regretted that He had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. In Exodus 32, when the Israelites made a golden calf, the Lord at first threatened to destroy the entire nation, but 
Then after Moses prayed, Exodus 32:14 says, Yahweh relented concerning the harm which he said he would do to his people. And in fact, in 1 Samuel 15, you have both ideas side by side. The Lord says he's sorry that he set Saul up to be king, both 2 Samuel 24:16 and 1 Chronicles 21:15 describe an incident when David sinned by making a census and numbering the people of Israel. And both verses say that God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem, but before the destroying angel finished his work, Yahweh saw and relented concerning the calamity and said to the destroying angel, it's enough, now relax your hand. And you remember the incident in Jonah's time when God threatened to destroy the city, yet 30 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. But the people repented. And Jonah 3.10 says, God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And so God relented concerning the evil which he had spoken he would bring upon them, and he did not bring it upon them. So why would Scripture teach on the one hand that God never changes his mind when Scripture so often portrays him as changing his mind? It's a good question, isn't it? Does it trouble you? Well, here's the short answer, and then I want to expand on it. That's what this hour is about. The Bible clearly teaches us that God does not change his mind. I believe he doesn't change his mind. Numbers 23, 19, again, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29, back to that same chapter where he says he regretted that he had made Saul king. In that very same chapter, it says, The eternal one of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. In the same context where he says he regretted making Saul king. Malachi 3.6, I, Yahweh, do not change. James 1.17, we read it this morning, describes God as the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So tons of verses that stress the immutability, unchangeableness of God. So then what do we do with all those verses that do describe God as relenting or changing his mind? And there is only one rational, reasonable, biblical explanation for those passages. They're figures of speech. They're an accommodation to the limitations of human language. They're picturesque expressions that are are used to tell us something about God that could not otherwise be described, but has to be described in human terms. They tell us something about God that, frankly, we could never completely wrap our finite minds around. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Romans 11.34. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We can't figure out the mind of God. So what Scripture tells us, we have to take at faith, take by faith, and reconcile what seem to be these contradictory statements by understanding that Scripture frequently uses figures of speech. Now, you might ask, so how do we know Scripture isn't using a figure of speech like hyperbole or generalization when it says God doesn't change his mind? What if that means he usually doesn't change his mind, but sometimes he does? How do we know when it says... God does not change his mind. How do we know that's not the figurative language? Because there do seem to be a lot of statements that portray God as changing his mind. Why don't we take those texts literally 
and assume that it's just figurative language when the Bible says God doesn't change his mind. Here's why. Because everything the Bible teaches us about God is incompatible with the notion that he might change his mind. You can't reconcile that with virtually anything else Scripture tells us about God. The Bible says, for example, that he is omniscient. He already knows everything. So Psalm 147, verse 5, his understanding is infinite. And Scripture repeatedly tells us that he knows even the thoughts of the hearts of men. Psalm 139, verse 4, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. He knows the end from the beginning, according to Isaiah 46, verse 10. And he knows it perfectly, exhaustively, infallibly. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And he knows every time a sparrow falls, Scripture says. Jesus said that. Now, God does not gain that knowledge by learning it. He doesn't count the hairs on your head. He knows that number already. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. He already knows everything. So God couldn't change his mind because he could never learn anything that he doesn't already know. Nothing could ever cause him to change his mind. The way he manifests his mind to us might change according to his sovereign will, And that's what Scripture's describing when it says God repented of this or that, but it doesn't literally mean that something caused God to change His mind. It can't possibly mean that, because Scripture also teaches that God is sovereign. His mind is subject only to His own sovereign will and nothing else. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. Has He not said, and will He not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not establish it? In other words, God himself has already decreed whatsoever shall come to pass. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, and this is God himself speaking. He says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my counsel will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now, think about what that passage is saying. He declared the end from the beginning. So he knew infallibly before anything was ever set in motion, he knew precisely what the end of all things would be, and he knew how things would happen along the way. And therefore, there is no occasion that could ever arise in which God would need to change his mind. And this is a very important issue. It's hard to untangle in a finite mind. I get that. This is not an easy doctrine, but it's an important one. There are some sinister brands of theology floating around. For example, open theism, which says that the future is open and undecided. That's where the name comes from, open theism. Everything that hasn't happened yet is totally open. It could go one way or another, open theism. The future is open and undecided, and therefore even God doesn't fully know everything. The open theists argue he can't know the future perfectly and exhaustively because the future doesn't even exist yet. That's their argument. Then there's the so-called process theology, which suggests that God himself is a work in process. He hasn't yet become everything that he will be, they claim. 
And I hope you can see the heresy of that on the face of it. And slightly less heretical, but it's still a matter of concern, there are those in the evangelical movement who believe and teach that God is an emotional being with changing temperaments so that his moods can rise and fall. He has mood swings and emotional effusions and and shifts in his attitudes and, and passions that respond to external forces. That's the claim. And you can see that goes contrary to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I think the Puritans understood something about God that we need to recover in our generation. Because all of those views about God as constantly in flux, changing this and that, all of those views seriously diminish the lofty view of God that we are taught in Scripture. If God doesn't really know the future, if, if He might change His mind or, or be influenced by something He didn't foresee or anticipate, or if, if God is subject to reflexive, involuntary passions that well up in Him and alter His mood or His disposition, then, then He's not the sovereign, all-knowing, unchanging God of Scripture. That's really bad theology to think of God like that. If God will literally change His mind then he himself is not really unchanging and immutable. He, he would be vacillating and undependable, and that is not the God of the Bible. But I'll go even a step further. Not only does God not change his mind, he doesn't change his mood. He's not subject to the rise and fall of passions like our human minds are. His, his affections are not like we understand human emotions are. When Scripture ascribes joy or wrath or gladness or anger to God, it's simply describing various aspects of His disposition that are actually fixed and immutable. His mood is not subject to the ebb and flow or change and variableness that we know as humans with our emotions. God's wrath against sin, for example, it's a fixed and unchanging hatred of everything that is evil. It doesn't grow any more than it is because he hates it infinitely already. And thankfully, by the same token, that means that his love for his people is also eternally fixed and unvariable. His love for us doesn't change or diminish, even during those times when it seems like God's dealings with us might be colored by his displeasure over our sin, he still loves us with an everlasting love. And that love isn't diminished, even when what we're experiencing might be God's displeasure. And there's a theological term for this truth. What we're saying here is that God is impassable. It doesn't mean that he's devoid of feelings or affections. But it does mean that the divine affections are as fixed and as faithful as he is. He's not subject to mood swings. And all the biblical statements about God's anger, those are his grief over sin and his sorrow over and gladness, all of those are also figures of speech. We call them anthropopathisms. I hesitate to use that word because I couldn't even try to spell it for you. Anthropopathism. They're figurative expressions that ascribe human passions to God. Anthropopathisms are to emotions what anthropomorphisms are to body parts. You you know what an anthropomorphism is. That's a little more 
common word, anthropomorphism, that's where hands or, and feet or eyes or other human body parts are ascribed to God. When we know God is a spirit, and a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, and yet you find examples of this in Exodus 15, verse 17, 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 3, 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, and frankly, lots of other passages of Scripture. And as I said, we know God is a spirit. He doesn't have flesh and bones. That's Luke 24, 39. So when Scripture speaks of God as having eyes or an arm or His hands, we're not, we naturally read those expressions as figures of speech. We know we're not supposed to take them literally, right? Almost no one, there are a few crazy people, but almost no one would claim that these biblical expressions that ascribe physical features to God are meant to be interpreted literally. We understand those are figures of speech. But the texts that assign emotions to God are another matter. And in fact, some Christians will actually get angry if you suggest that the verses that make God sound moody and temperamental, these are not to be taken literally. If you say that, I know Christians who get angry about that. They like the idea of a really emotional God. And on the one level, I kind of understand that desire. After all, one of the greatest comforts to any believer is the reassurance that God loves us. But if you strip love of passion, we tend to think that's a lesser kind of love. If that were the case, the the doctrine of divine impassibility would diminish God's love. So this this is probably the most difficult biblical dilemma of all for those of us who affirm the classic view of an utterly sovereign and immutable God. How can we make sense of the various divine affections that are spoken of in Scripture? If God is eternally fixed and unchanging, if His will and His mind are as fixed and as constant as His character, then how could He ever experience the the rising and falling passions that we associate with love and joy and exasperation or even anger? The doctrine of divine impassibility, the truth that God doesn't have mood swings, He doesn't have passions like ours, that actually has become one of the biggest issues under debate in the academic realm, in the the evangelical Christianity over the past uh, few years. In fact, I first noticed this debate more than 20 years ago when we had some advocates of open theism lobbying for acceptance in the Evangelical Theological Society. Open theism, I described it earlier, it's inherently hostile to the idea of divine impassibility because their whole system is about trying to concoct a more manageable deity, a more humanized, friendly, approachable God who is devoid of all perfections that, make him, that would make him fearful or intimidating to sinful creatures. Because remember, open theism starts with the notion that God doesn't know the future perfectly or exhaustively. So the future is still open as far as God is concerned. He doesn't know everything that's going to happen. Now, obviously, that's not an easy uh, point of view to sell on the basis of Scripture because it is pretty clear, isn't it, that God makes prophecies. He foretells the future. As we saw in Isaiah 46.10, he declared the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that have not yet been done. Before time ever was even created, before it ever existed, God sovereignly decreed 
everything that how it was going to turn out in the end. And Scripture could hardly state that truth any more clearly than it does. And so open theism obviously has some pretty formidable biblical obstacles to overcome on the issue of whether God actually knows the future. But on this question of impassibility, open theists managed to confound a lot of more sound and solid evangelicals by arguing that the case for a God who is driven by passions and and strong emotional reactions, that makes God more loving, more approachable. They claim that if classic theism is correct, if the divine affections are fixed and constant, then they say God himself must be inert and unfeeling. And in an age of unbridled charismatic enthusiasm, no one, it seems, wants a God who isn't also full of intense passions, you know? God must raise his hands, too, when we sing, right? And so the confessional statement saying God is without passions, it doesn't fit the new Calvinism, the, the sort of charismatic Calvinism that sprung up in the past two decades. And those who oppose the classic view of God often describe this doctrine of divine impassibility with, with a gross caricature, actually, that appeals to the self-centered, emotionally driven style of modern evangelicalism that we all see all around us. In fact, here's what one writer said about the doctrine of divine impassibility in an article in Christianity Today all the way back in 1997. I told you I've been watching this issue for more than 20 years. In 1997, Christianity Today ran an article that was titled, The God Who Suffers. And the subtitle asked this question, if God does not grieve then can he love at all? And it labeled the article an argument for God's emotions. And it went on to say, quote, If love implies vulnerability, the traditional understanding of God as impassable makes it impossible to say that God is love. An almighty God who cannot suffer is poverty-stricken because he can't love or be involved. If God remains unmoved by whatever we do, there's really very little point in doing one thing rather than the other. If friendship means allowing oneself to be affected by another, then this unmoved, unfeeling deity can't have friends or be our friend. And then another author, who his name is Richard Rice, he's an avowed open theist, deliberately exaggerates the doctrine of impassibility. According to him, here's the view of God that has dominated church history. Here's what he, how he describes the doctrine of impassibility. He says, that God dwells in perfect bliss outside the sphere of, sphere of time and space. He remains essentially unaffected by creaturely events and experiences. He is untouched by the disappointment, sorrow, or suffering of his creatures. Just as his sovereign will brooks no opposition, his serene tranquility knows no interruption. So he wants a God who will be upset by what's happening to us. And he claims that classic theists commonly dismiss the biblical terminology about divine affections as, in his words, poetic flights essentially unrelated to central qualities that the Old Testament attributes to God. Instead, he says, the God of classic theism is made of sterner stuff, he says. He's powerful. He's authoritarian. He's inflexible. So the tender feelings we read of in the prophets are merely examples of poetic license. Now, I want to say right away, that's a caricature 
But in other words, if you listen to Richard Rice's view, as he tells it, the God of historic mainstream Christianity is aloof and uncaring, unfeeling, and utterly indifferent to his creature's plight. By contrast, Rice depicts the God of open theism as a God of fervent passion, whose inner life, he says, is moved by a wide range of feelings, including joy, grief, anger, and regret. According to Richard Rice, God also experiences frustrated desires and suffering and agony and severe anguish. And in fact, he says, and and nearly all open theists would agree with him, that all of those injuries can be inflicted on God by his own creatures. In short, he believes in a God who can be emotionally victimized by his own creatures. Clark Pinnock agrees with that. He's an open theist as well. He says, God is not cool and collected, but is deeply involved and can be wounded. In fact, he believes the essence of divine love and tenderness is seen in, these are his words, God makes himself vulnerable within the relationship to us. And so the open theists would would set a stark dichotomy before the Christian public. The two clear and only options, according to them, are the tempestuously passionate God of open theism, who, who is subject to hurts that could be inflicted on him by his creatures, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, there's this utterly indifferent God who they say goes with classic theism, who at the end of the day, according to Clark Pinnock, and again, these are his words, looks a lot like a metaphysical iceberg. Now, consider carefully, though, what these opponents of the doctrine of divine impassibility are saying. Their God can be wounded. His own creatures can afflict him with anguish and woe. He is regularly frustrated when his plans are thwarted, and he is bitterly disappointed when his will is stymied as it regularly is. And so in their zeal to avoid what they wrongly imagine makes God apathetic, they've actually replaced him with a God who is merely pathetic. And this view places God in the hands of angry sinners, because only that kind of God, they claim, is capable of true love and genuine tenderness or or meaningful affections of any kind. And in fact, the proponents of a passionate God insist that if the God of classic theism is not capable of being hurt by his creatures, then he's also incapable of being rational. This is their argument. They say, an impassable God is too detached, unfeeling, apathetic, devoid of all sensitivity, And according to them, those are the inescapable ramifications of the doctrine of divine impassibility. They're wrong about that, but that is the claim they make, and I wanted you to hear it. That, by the way, is the the favorite kind of cheap shot assault on classic theism that you will hear from people who reject the immutability of God or the timelessness of God or the impassibility of God or the simplicity of God. They, They love to attack at this point. It has great appeal for their side as far as the typical Christian is concerned because no true believer would ever want to concede that God is callous or uncaring. We know He's not. And the sad truth these days is that the doctrine of divine impassibility has been so long neglected and underemphasized 
among evangelicals that many who would profess to believe in the immutability of God. We know that God uh, does not change his mind or his disposition or his character. Nevertheless, people tend to go wobbly when this question arises of whether God has passions. They have been too easily swayed by the caricatures or else they're too slow to refute them. For example, Wayne Grudem wrote a systematic theology that that I generally like. It has some really fine sections. He is committed to the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. He uh, has stood courageously for the biblical differentiation between men and women's roles. And, And I would say overall, his systematic theology is pretty well written and helpful. But in a section where he deals with the attributes of God, he quickly dismisses the doctrine of divine impassibility. Here's what he says, quote, I have not affirmed God's impassibility in this book. God, who is the origin of our emotions and who created our emotions, certainly does feel emotions. Now, he seems to think that the Westminster Confession's statement that God is without passions, I think he thinks that means to portray God as utterly apathetic. And so he agrees with the critics of classic theism who claim that the doctrine of impassibility makes God cold and unfeeling. And he seems to grasp that what I would affirm, God's affections are real, but they're fixed and not fluctuating And they're not at the mercy of outside influences the way human emotions are. But his entire discussion of divine immutability is marred by this inability to make that distinction. And it even seems to cause him to take a weak stance on the question of whether God really does change his mind or not. Some 25 years ago or more, I corresponded on the Internet with an evangelical minister from Britain. I think he was in the Church of England. And he hated the doctrine of divine impassibility, and I was defending it in one of those online theological forums. And he wrote me and said, the God of the Bible is much more emotional than we are. He is not less so. And so I wrote him back and said, really? Does your God have even bigger mood swings than my wife's grandmother? (laughs) Which may not have been the best way for me to make my point, but, but I hope the point was clear. It's a serious mistake to think that God is subject to like passions as we are, to borrow words from the King James Version of James 5.17, as if God possessed a temper that was subject to involuntary oscillation. Reflect for a moment, and you'll realize that if God is subject to fits and mood swings, his immutability and his sovereignty are seriously undermined at every point. If his creatures can literally make him change his mood by the things that we do, then God isn't truly even in control of his own state of mind. And more to the point, if outside influences can force an involuntary change in God's disposition, then what real assurance do we have that God's love for us is going to remain constant? That is precisely why the prophet Jeremiah cited God's immutability and impassibility as the main guarantee of God's steadfast love for his elect. The loving kindnesses of Yahweh indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's Lamentations 3.22. 
And the familiar promise in that verse would collapse on itself if God is subject to mood swings. If there's any possibility that God's disposition could could shift, then we don't have any confidence in the security of our own salvation. Because if divine wrath is subject to the rise and fall of changing emotions, then we would all be subject to instant destruction every time we committed a sin that might provoke God to lose His temper badly enough. And God Himself makes that point in Malachi 3.6. He says, I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. The fact that God doesn't change is the reason we're not consumed. Now, let's sort out some of the difficulties of this doctrine. And to be perfectly frank, Impassibility is a difficult doctrine. It's both hard to understand and it's fraught with hazards for anybody who tries to handle it carelessly. And dangers actually lurk on both sides of the straight and narrow path here. While you have radical Arminians and passionate charismatics lampooning the doctrine of divine impassibility by by saying this turns God into an emotional iceberg, on the other side you have a few nutty hyper-Calvinists who seem prepared to argue that God is cold and unfeeling like ice. And obviously, people on both sides of this debate are confused about what the doctrine of divine impassibility entails. And a certain level of confusion is understandable. I get that. In fact, the, 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 the subtitle of, of this lecture that was listed in the Sundays in July thing said, the difficult doctrine of divine impassibility. It is a difficult doctrine. After all, we're dealing with something we cannot possibly comprehend completely. Romans 11:34 again, who has known the mind of the Lord? And in Psalm 50 verse 21, God rebukes the people of Israel with these words. He says to them, "You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you," he says. Because God is not like us. His mind doesn't work like ours. He's totally different from us. Uh, especially in his mind, and that is the whole point of his holiness. He's different. He's apart from his creation. So let's begin by acknowledging that we're, we're all too prone to think of God in human terms. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, "'My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts.'" And again and again, Scripture reminds us that the affections of God are immutable, inscrutable. So, to cite just one example, consider the fact that God's love never wavers and never wanes. Scripture tells us that all the time. That alone makes God's love unlike any human love any of us have ever experienced. If you consider how the Bible defines love rather than how we experience love and the passions that are associated with it, then you can see that human love and divine love both have all the same characteristics, and they're spelled out for us in detail in 1 Corinthians 13. But notice, read that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and notice that not one characteristic in the biblical definition of love has anything whatsoever to do with passion. The passions we feel with love, 
Those are side effects. That's not love. Real love, we discover, is nothing like the emotion that most people associate when they mention love. Contrary to what that Christianity Today article that I quoted earlier says, true love is not properly defined as vulnerability. And you have to let Scripture, not human experience, shape your understanding of true affections, and especially God's affections. Those who study this matter quickly discover that God's Word, rather than some medieval theologian, but God's Word is where we learn that the divine affections exist on an infinitely higher plane than human passions. You can learn some things from those anthropopathic expressions, but to a large degree, the divine affections at the end of the day are still hidden in impenetrable, incomprehensible mystery far above our understanding. Don't let go of that fact. Don't try to make God somehow a, a creature that you can, you can wrap your mind around. In fact, let me show you what I mean by going back for a moment to that incident at Sinai where the Israelites made a golden calf. This is where Scripture tells us that the eternally unchanged and unchanging God became so angry at Israel there at the foot of Sinai, that he threatened to annihilate the whole nation. Now, think about the effect if if God did that. It would essentially void the Abrahamic covenant. God would have to break his promise in order to wipe out all of Israel. Listen to Exodus 32, verses 10 and 11. In fact, Moses appealed to him on that basis. The Lord says to Moses, now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, that my, I may consume them. And he says to Moses, I will make you a great nation. And then Moses entreated the favor of Yahweh his God and said, Oh, Yahweh, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a strong hand? Now, there are two things that ought to be perfectly clear to any rational thinker who studies this incident. First of all, we're not to read this passage and imagine that God is really subject to fits and temper tantrums. His wrath against sin is surely something more than just a bad mood. We know this passage is not to be interpreted with a kind of wooden literalness so that we think, you know, God is just flying off the handle here. How can you be sure? Well, remember again, Scripture clearly states that there is no actual variation or variableness with God. We read it again this morning, James 1.17, with God there is no variation or shifting shadow. He could not have truly been wavering over whether to keep his covenant with Abraham. Deuteronomy 4.31 says, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you or destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your father's which he swore to them. Now, and we know that Moses' intercession in this incident, Exodus 32, verses 12 through 14, the fact that Moses prayed for the Israelites could not literally have provoked a change of mind in God because we're already, we've already cited several times Numbers 23, 19, which says, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. In other words, if you take a strictly literal interpretation of the anthropopathism in Exodus 32, it's an impossibility because it would impugn either the character of God or the trustworthiness of his word. 
And so there's that. That's one reason we know that's not to be taken literally. But a second truth emerges just as clearly from this vivid account of God's righteous anger. That passage destroys the notion that God is aloof and uninvolved in any kind of relationship with his people. Even though these descriptions of God's anger are are not to be taken literally, as if he's having a temper tantrum here, neither are these expressions meant to be discarded as meaningless. In other words, you can only make begin to make sense of the doctrine of impassibility after you concede the utter impossibility of comprehending the mind of God. And the next step then is to recognize the biblical use of anthropopathism. Since our thoughts are not like God's thoughts, how does He describe His thoughts to us? He can only do it in human terms that we can understand. And many vital truths about God cannot be expressed except through figures of speech that accommodate the limitations of human language and human learning. These anthropopathisms then have to be mined for their meaning. There is meaning here, even though it's not to be taken strictly literally, although we know these are figures of speech, we still have to acknowledge that such expressions mean something And specifically, these are reassurances to us that God is not uninvolved or indifferent to His creation. He is fully engaged with us. And because we recognize these expressions as metaphorical, we also have to confess that there's something they don't mean. They don't mean that God is literally subject to mood swings or melancholy or spasms of passion or temper tantrums. And in order to make this absolutely clear, Scripture often stresses the constancy of God's love, the infiniteness of His mercies, the certainty of His promises, the unchangeableness of His mind, and the lack of any fluctuation in the perfections of God. Those are the things we have to keep in focus. Again, with God, there is no variation or shadow, shifting shadow. This absolute immutability is one of God's transcendent characteristics. And we need to resist the temptation to try to bring these ideas in line with our finite human understanding. That's really just a kind of idolatry if you do that. You're trying to remake God in in man's image. So, what does impassibility mean then? What about this charge that impassibility turns God into an iceberg? The complaint turns out to be bogus. Mainstream classic theism, and you can go all the way back into Old Testament rabbinical writings, classic theism has always denied that the God of Scripture is cold or, or remote from His creation. One of the earliest church fathers, Justin Martyr, said that any view of God that sees Him as apathetic amounts to a kind of atheistic nominalism. Here's Justin Martyr, quote, If anyone disbelieves that God cares for his creation, he will thereby either insinuate that God does not exist, or he will assert that though he exists, he delights in vice or exists like a stone, and that neither virtue nor vice are anything, but only in the opinion of men these things are reckoned good or evil. And this, Justin Martyr says, is the greatest profanity and wickedness. 
He's saying God is not like a stone. He's not like an iceberg. His immutability is not the same thing as inertia. The fact that he doesn't change his mind doesn't mean that he's devoid of thought. And likewise, the fact that he isn't subject to involuntary passions doesn't mean that he's devoid of true affections. What it does mean is that God's mind and his affections are not at all like human thoughts and passions. There's never anything involuntary or irrational or out of control about the divine affections. In fact, here's how J.I. Packer describes the doctrine of divine impassibility. He says this means not that God is impassive and unfeeling. He says that's a frequent misunderstanding. But what it means is that no created beings can inflict pain, suffering, or distress on God at their will. The Christian mainstream, he says, has construed impassibility as meaning that God is a stranger to joy and delight. That's wrong, he says. His joy is permanent. It's not clouded by involuntary pain. That's the right way to understand it. And notice his emphasis. God's affections, he says, are never passive or involuntary, but rather they are always active and deliberate. Elsewhere he writes this, quote, Impassibility is not impassivity or unconcern. It's not impersonal detachment in the face of the creation. It's not insensitivity and indifference to the distresses of a fallen world. It's not inability or unwillingness to empathize with human pain and grief. It simply means that God's experiences do not come on him the way ours come upon us, because his are foreknown, willed, and chosen by himself, and they are not involuntary surprises forced on him from the outside, apart from his own will, the way that ours regularly are. I sometimes quote R.L. Dabney, and he had, he had some good things to say about this. He's a brilliant theological mind. My support of him lately, you might have seen on the internet, has become kind of controversial because his legacy has been marred by his own foolish support of Southern slavery. But he wrote his best theological works before the Civil War and all the propaganda of that era that ultimately poisoned his attitude. But he studied and and wrote a lot of very perceptive theological essays when he was just teaching theology. Uh, We have the notes that he used when he was teaching theology in a seminary setting. And again, he produced some excellent material that deals with the doctrine of divine impassibility. He described God's affections as active principles to distinguish them from merely passive emotions. He wrote this, quote, These are not passions in the sense of involuntary fluctuations or agitations, But nonetheless, he says, they are true affections of the divine will. Now, notice he's agreeing here with the same thing that Packer said. Both of them insist and do not deny that God has true affections. But both of them see the affections of God as always active, never passive, that God is the sovereign initiator and instigator of all his own affections, which are never uncontrolled or arbitrary. He can't be made, in other words, to emote against his will or outside of his sovereign purpose. But God himself is always the source and the author of his effective dispositions, let's say, those, those affections. Jonathan Edwards made another helpful distinction. He pointed out that passions are involuntary and non-rational, whereas 
affections are volitions and dispositions that are under the control of the rational senses. So Edwards was very careful to distinguish those two things. God is without passions, but he's not without affections. And, and if you give that distinction its proper place, it seems perfectly appropriate to say that although God is without passions, he is surely not without affections. And in fact, his joy, his wrath, his sorrow, his pity, his compassion, his delight, his love, his hatred, and all the other divine affections, these epitomize the very perfection of all of the heartfelt affections that you and I know, even though we know those things imperfectly as human beings. But God's affections are perfect, and they are absent the ebb and flow of changeableness that you and I experience with our human emotions, and yet they are real and powerful feelings nonetheless. To suggest that God is unfeeling is to mangle the intent of the doctrine of divine impassibility. So I hope you get that. A proper understanding of impassibility should not lead us to think that God is unfeeling, but his feelings are never passive. In other words, God's affections are not produced by any external agency. And furthermore, they don't come and go or change and fluctuate. But when we say they're active, we mean they are sovereignly directed dispositions rather than passive reactions to any external stimuli. And they differ in all of those ways from the emotions that we feel. And furthermore, God's hatred and his love, his pleasure and his grief over sin, these are as fixed and immutable as any other aspect of the divine character. And that is what all of those verses mean about the unchangeableness of God. Numbers 23, 19, 1 Samuel 15, 29, Malachi 3, 6, James 1, 17. All of them say God never changes. If he appears to change moods in the biblical narrative or in the outworking of his providence... It's only because from time to time in God's dealings with his people, he brings those various dispositions more or less to the forefront to show us all the aspects of his character. But his love is never overwhelmed by his wrath or vice versa. And in fact, there's no real change in God at all. How can that be? We don't know because we can't understand God's mind. As humans, we can no more imagine how God's affections can be eternally free from any kind of change than we can comprehend infinity itself. I mean, you know infinity must exist. You can conceive of the idea, but you can never wrap your mind around it. This is like that. In Dabney's words, can we picture an adequate conception of God's affections? No, he says, it is high. We cannot attain to it. But this, he says, is the, const the consistent understanding of divine revelation, and it is the only apprehension of God that does not both transcend and violate man's reasons, reason, rather, our logic. It's the only logical way to understand all of the scriptural data. That's what he's saying, that God's affections, uh, like every other aspect of the divine character, simply cannot be understood on merely human terms. And that's why Scripture employs anthropomorphic and anthropopathic expressions. Dabney also gave a, a wise word of caution about the danger of brushing aside the meaning of these biblical figures of speech. While he acknowledged that 
Scripture uses figures of speech and anthropomathism widely. He, he's not willing to evacuate those metaphors of their common sense implications. So he's saying, though these may be figurative expressions, they're not devoid of meaning. He cited some verses that spoke of God's wrath and his delight, and he asked this question, is all this so anthropopathic as not even to mean that God's active principles here have an objective? Why not let the scriptures mean what they so plainly strive to declare? What they so plainly strive to declare is that God does care about us. And in the end, we need to affirm both sides of what Scripture strives to declare. One, that God is unchanging and unchangeable. That's clear in Scripture. But also clear in Scripture, He is not devoid of affection, including His love for His people. So His impassibility should never be set against His affections. His immutability doesn't rule out personal involvement with his creatures. Or to say it in technical terms, God's transcendence is not incompatible with his imminence. He's high above us, and yet he's also a very present help in time of need. And Scripture affirms both truths. In short, Yahweh is not a metaphysical iceberg. And while he's never at the mercy of his creatures... Neither is he detached from them. His wrath against sin is real and powerful. His compassion for sinners is also sincere and indefatigable. His mercies are truly over all of his works. And above all, his eternal love for his people is more real and more powerful and more enduring than any earthly emotion that ever bore the label love. Unlike human love, God's love is unfailing, unwavering, and eternally constant. And that fact alone ought to convince us that God's affections are not like human passions. In fact, that's a basic principle of Christianity itself. Anyone who imagines the divine affections as fluid and vacillating passions, that person has no biblical understanding of the steadfastness and faithfulness of our God. And that's why I object so strongly to anyone's denial of God's impassibility. In the name of trying to make God more relational, postmodern theological hacks have undermined the constancy of God's love. And they've divested him of yet another of his incommunicable attributes... They've taken another giant step further towards refashioning God in the, in the likeness of his creatures. Who can tell where this campaign to humanize God will end? And I'll tell you where it ends. It finally ends with a wholesale denial of the God of Scripture. Let me cite a case study for you. Famous theologian Nicholas P. Wolterstorff. He was professor of philosophy, of philosophical theology at the uh, Yale Divinity School. And he rejected the doctrine of divine impassibility after the death of his own son. It was a a horrible tragedy. And Walter Storff said he was shattered by grief. And he says he found no comfort in leaning on the strength and immutability of an unchanging God. He wanted God to hurt with him. And he says he meditated on these things. And he concluded that if God is truly a God of love, he can't possibly be unmoved by human tragedy. He says, quote, I found that picture of God as blissfully unperturbed by this world's anguish impossible to accept. 
existentially impossible. He says, I couldn't live with it. I found it grotesque. And yet, Waltersdorf admits that his denial of this doctrine turned out to be like a thread that when he pulled it, it unraveled his entire understanding of God. He said, quote, Once you pull on the thread of impassibility, a lot of other threads come along. One also has to give up immutability, the changelessness of God, and eternity. If God responds, he says, then God is not metaphysically immutable. And if he is not metaphysically immutable, then he's not eternal. That's a pretty big jump, isn't it? And yet he's right. That's where a denial of this doctrine will lead. Here's one of the most prominent theologians and philosophers in the modern world admitting that if you abandon the doctrine of divine impassibility, all the other attributes of God, including his eternality, collapse like a a house of cards. And even though Waltersdorf says he has abandoned the doctrine of divine impassibility, I'm not willing to do that. Because I do find comfort in the truth that God is strong and unmovable and his love is unshakable. That's what comforts me in the midst of tragedy. This is what Scripture teaches about God. Is it hard for our minds to comprehend? Yes. But why would we expect the truth about God to be otherwise? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. This is who our God is. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your steadfast immutability, the truth that you do not change and therefore we're not consumed. Thank you for your love towards us, totally undeserved and yet totally unchanging by anything that we do. We pray, Lord, that you would remold us so that we are steadfast, so that our hearts are fixed. And may our love for you be the center of all of our emotions, all of our feelings, all of our thoughts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.